We'll be looking in the book of Joel again. We've been there for a few weeks, and I've tried to emphasize that our purpose is not only to understand the book itself, but also to come to a better understanding of how to interpret prophetic scriptures in general. We'll be dealing with chapter 3 today, which has to do with God's judgment on the nations and the great blessings he has in store for his repentant people. So judgment upon nations and great blessings upon his people. In interpreting any portion of scripture, especially the prophetic portions, it's important to keep in mind the big picture. What was God's overall plan and purpose in creation? In a nutshell, it was to bring glory to his name through a love relationship with his image bearers, mankind. A love relationship with his image bearers. Sin ruined that. Christ restores that. Adam's sin did not surprise God. He already had a plan, or I think it would actually be better to say he always had a plan for a second Adam, the last Adam, who would redeem humanity and restore the ravaged creation. So the big picture is centered on God summing up all things in Christ. That's the big picture. God summing up all things in Christ in a way that will produce eternal fellowship and harmony between God and his redeemed creation. That's the big picture. That's the overall theme of the Bible. As we study through the book of Joel, keeping in mind it's important to keep the big picture in mind, uh, I think it's good to think of some of the other prophetic themes, major prophetic themes that are found throughout the Old Testament. Uh, All of those prophetic themes in one way or another pointed forward to Christ. So I'd like to just list briefly here some of those themes, even though not all of them are found in the book of Joel. Immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve, you have God himself giving the first prophecy concerning Christ. that from their seed, from Adam and Eve's seed, would come one who, though bruised on his heel, would bruise the serpent's head. And again, this is really the first prophecy in the Bible related to the redeeming work of Christ. Later, when God called Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people, he said to him, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The promise is made to Abraham that his seed, and we're told in the New Testament that seed is Christ, his seed would bless and someday possess the world. Bless and possess. Abraham's seed, bless and possess the world. Those are fulfilled in Christ. Find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. When God established the Mosaic Covenant with Israel. It stipulated both blessings and curses, joys and judgments, based upon obedience or disobedience disobedience to the law of Moses. Over and over again, the prophets told the people 
that continued covenant breaking would result in judgment and sometimes invasion, sometimes exile. Often this involved foreign armies like we're seeing in, in Joel, not just insects, not just locusts, but actual armies coming in. Uh, and this scenario of judgment for their sin happened repeatedly throughout Israel's history, which made it abundantly clear that Israel needed a savior. They needed a deliverer, both from outward enemies, but even more so from inward unfaithfulness. On the other hand, when Israel would repent and return to the Lord, there would be restoration and rest. Much of what Joel was presenting to the people of his day, what we've been reading, was based on the Old Covenant uh, related to blessings and cursings. Blessings for the obedience, curses, curses and judgment upon disobedience. But even in the midst of all the emphasis on the law, with its temple and sacrifices, we're talking about in the Old Covenant, with its temple and sacrifices and priesthood, which were set up because of law-breaking, God was pointing forward to Christ, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the true priest, the true law-giver, and the true law-keeper. See, we're talking about all these prophecies, just over and over throughout the Old Testament, they're all pointing to Christ. The prophets also spoke of an amazing time when Israel would be transformed and God's law would be obeyed from the heart, not just an external obedience, but obedience from the heart. This transformation of Israel was prophesied to include um, a new covenant in which God's law would be written on the hearts, not, not in stone tablets, but written on the hearts, and would be obeyed, God's law would be truly obeyed, uh, and there would be a true knowledge of God's. So this, this is a prophecy related these prophecies related to the new covenant. This new covenant was based upon the work of Christ. In fact, he calls it the new covenant in my blood. Those incorporated in the new covenant would be empowered through the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. And again, this is, this is in Joel. I mean, this is one of the major prophecies of Joel related to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that then was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Sometimes this restoration of God's people was spoken of in terms of the coming kingdom of God in which a coming Messiah would reign as king in fulfillment of the promises made to King David. So, again, Christ, looking at Christ. But there were also prophecies telling of a coming suffering servant who would suffer for the sins of God's people to whom the stroke was due. Again, Christ. Another emphasis of the prophets, like Joel, is judgment on Israel's enemies. These prophecies of judgment were often associated with what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. And we saw that repeatedly in Joel. I think five times he speaks of the day of the Lord. Again, Christ is the focus there. The day of the Lord is ultimately the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, as it's called in the New Testament. 
God was giving him, has given him authority to execute judgment. As we have seen in Joel, Joel deals with this subject of the day of the Lord over and over again, and we'll take it up here again this morning just briefly. Then there were the many prophetic portions of Scripture that spoke of the, the universal scope of God's redemptive plan. These scriptures foretold that the nations would one day be converted to, to worship, to worship God. And the Gentiles would have the same status before God as Israel. For instance, Deuteronomy 32:43 says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And that's quoted in the New Testament as showing that God was, was working uh, amongst the Gentiles. The Gentiles, too, would be part of God's people, and all would be one in Christ, one in Christ. And we see this emphasis in Joel also. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The whomever means anybody, Jew or Gentile. See it again. It's implied when, when Joel talks about the Holy Spirit being poured, upon, uh, poured out on all mankind again. It's for everybody. So the universal scope of God's redemptive plan, a major uh, prophetic theme. And on top of all this, the prophets foresaw a time when there would be an ultimate destruction of all evil and sin, and a total renewing of God's creation, a final and full day of the Lord. God would create a new heavens and a new earth, where all people are righteous and will possess the land forever, dwelling in God's very presence for eternity. All this, again, finds its fulfillment in Christ. It'll ha that, that takes place when Christ comes again. A subject Joel, uh, Joel deals with in the last verses of chapter 3. We won't get there today, but hopefully uh, next time. So, from just this brief overview of the Old Testament predictive prophecies, I think prophecies. I think it should be evident that uh, there's many wonderful and diverse subjects, but they all point forward to Christ. As uh, I mean, I just hit a few of them. There's many more, but they're all pointing forward in some way or another to Christ. Some of these prophetic themes had partial fulfillments near the various prophets' time when, when they actually lived. Others had fulfillments far in the future. Some have already come to pass, while others are even for us yet to be fulfilled. What sometimes makes interpretation of these prophecies difficult is, the, is that the near things that took place close to the prophet's time, and the far, things that took away, uh, that took place later on, maybe hundreds of years later, and then the ultimate fulfillment, which hasn't even happened yet, are often presented in the same prophecy without any clear distinction. It's just all right there. In fact, the prophet himself may have viewed these things which were separated by hundreds of years or even thousands as happening virtually at the same time. 
Sometimes commentators call this the prophetic perspective. Now what they're talking about, just to give an example, it's like if you've ever driven into Colorado, like you're going to Denver. Well, when you enter into Colorado, soon you start seeing these mountains way off in the distance. Uh, that's the Rocky Mountains. From a distance, it looks like all these mountain peaks are close together and besides one, beside one another. What you find out as you drive on a little bit is that some of these peaks are very far apart and some are many miles in back of others. You just couldn't tell that from a distance. And that's the way these prophecies often, uh, these prophets often viewed things. They were seeing them from a great distance. They looked like they were all together. They were not all together. Uh, maybe a better illustration would be looking up at the stars. They all seem to be basically the same distance from us, but some are actually hundreds or thousands of light years further than others, further away than others. So similarly, one prophet, one prophecy might contain details of events span, spanning many different periods of time. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about prophetic perspective. And this was one of the problems with how the Jews understood the prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. They did not see that the Old Testament prophecies involved an initial coming in humiliation and a second coming in exaltation. But this is just one example of what we've talked about in the, in the past that the New Testament interprets for us the Old Testament. We can see that clearly looking back uh, from what we know in the New Testament when we read these things. But they could, um, often that was not as clear to the people uh, giving these prophecies or hearing these prophecies, which should be a warning to us. If we're not careful in our interpretation of Scripture, we may be as wrong about the second coming as most of the Jewish leaders were about the first coming. Sadly, throughout church history, many confident predictions of the second coming have proved to be woefully wrong. So, this brings us then to chapter 3. A very, I, I, I'm just amazed as I dig into it more, it's a very remarkable section of scripture. And unfortunately one that has produced different interpretations concerning this area of the restoration of, of Israel and the judgment that's coming upon the nations. So we want to begin to deal with this chapter 3 today. And I've asked Jim to come up and read from chapter 3. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, uh, but the part that we want to deal with this morning. And uh, he's going to read 1 through 3 and skip this section, which we've talked about. Some of the uh, book of Joel is poetry, and most of it is, but there's a prose section, 4 through 8. I'm going to have him skip that and then begin reading again at 9 down through 17. So Joel 3, 1, uh, 3, 1 through 3, and then 9 through 17. 
chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Verse 9, Proclaim this among the nations, Prepare a war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man, hasten and come all you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit and judge all the nations, all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. One of the reasons that I've spent so much time in the past message is presenting principles of interpretation and also showing the great radical difference between the Old and New Covenants is so that you can see why I interpret this section of scripture the way I do. I want to just make note that what we're reading now takes place in the context of what we've just looked at at the end of chapter 2, which is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I also spent some time dealing with this subject of dispensationalism because the dispensationalist would have a different understanding of this portion of scripture than what I'm about to present. The main reason for that is they have little place for the concept of a spiritual Israel. But I'm I'm interpreting this section of scripture in light of that reality of a spiritual Israel and what the New Testament teaches about that. The question is this, does the judgment of the nations spoken of here deal primarily with how the nations treat ethnic Israel, or is the world's treatment of the church also a very important part of this judgment? 
maybe even the main part of this judgment. Then there is a related question of whether the restoration and glorious future spoken of here, which we'll talk more about in the future, but this restoration and glorious future spoken of here, is it referring primarily to ethnic Israel or is the church also an important part of this glorious future for the people of God? Some dispensationalists would say this portion is speaking almost solely or, or totally uh, about ethnic Israel, what God's yet going to do with, with uh, the Jewish people. Other less extreme dispensationalists would say that this is primarily about ethnic Israel, but has a secondary meaning and a fulfillment for the church. The church, for many dispensationalists, is kind of like a parentheses in God's plan. God's big plan has to do with Israel, and the church just kind of comes in on the side. That's not the position I take. God's emphasis is Christ and what he's doing in the church in and through the church. On the other hand, if you want to go to the other extreme, there are commentators who say this section has nothing to say about racial or ethnic Israel and only applies to spiritual Israel. What I would like to present to you in the light of what I believe the New Testament teaches about spiritual Israel is that the way to understand this section of scripture is that it deals ultimately with spiritual Israel. That's really the main emphasis. And that we're talking here about both Jews and Gentiles, spiritual Israel, those who have come to the knowledge of Christ, those who are in Christ. But that it does have a secondary application and fulfillment related to ethnic Israel. My reason for taking this position is that it seems clear to me that the emphasis of the New Testament is on Christ and the church, not racial Israel or ethnic Israel. The New Testament writers often apply many of the passages in the Old Testament which seem to speak of ethnic Israel to the church which is made up, again, of Jews, both Jews and Gentiles, who believe in Christ. First uh, Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10, where he talk about you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, people for God's own possession. Those are all Old Testament pictures, but, but Peter applies them to the church. He applies them to God's people uh, in the New Testament. I mean, we've, we've gone through some of that in the past, so I won't repeat it. But here's the other part of this that I want to bring out. It also seems clear to me that on the basis of Romans 11, that God will yet pour out his spirit upon the Jewish people in a far greater way than what we're seeing today. In other words, there's going to be a revival in ethnic Israel. Well, let's read it. Just it won't take long. I, just to get a little feel for it here in Romans chapter eleven. Verse 
just cutting, uh, kind of jumping in the middle of a section here, but uh, Paul says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation. For a partial hardening has happened to Israel. And he's talking about ethnic, racial Israel there. Until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's a quote right from the New Covenant uh, teaching about the law being written on the heart. This is my covenant with them when I, when I will take away their sin. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So he's talking about racial, I'm convinced he's talking about racial Israel, ethnic Israel, when he's talking about God yet doing a, a great work amongst those people. God began to make the new covenant a living reality to ethnic Israel in the early church. If you remember in the book of Acts, most of the first Christians were Jewish. Yet since that time, by and large, the church has been made up of Gentiles. But if I'm understanding what Paul says in Romans correctly, there's going to be yet a great gathering in of Jewish people in the end times. When I say gathering in, I mean they will be gathered into spiritual Israel. The church. They will embrace the new covenant in Christ's blood. Their racial identity will still be recognized. They'll be recognized as Jewish, but the primary reality about them is that they will be part of God's one kingdom, his one holy nation, his one body, the one new man, the one sheepfold following the one shepherd, part of the one olive tree, one covenant community, having one Lord and one faith and one baptism. This is my primary disagreement with the dispensationalists keeping these two people separate. God is not keeping Jews and Gentiles separate. He's bringing them together in Christ. Well, since I don't want this message to be too long, which some of mine have been lately, uh, I just want to hit on one subject in Chapter 3 this morning. We'll deal with some others later. But the one subject I'd like to look at this morning is... What is this valley of Jehoshaphat? Let's just look at it again here. Uh, Chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel. And then if you skip over to verse 12, let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will set in judgment 
all the set to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. I doubt if this section or these sections are meant to make us think of some localized valley in Israel, but rather to focus our attention on the time when judgment is going to be executed, final judgment. The emphasis is not on where this happens. I mean, if we, we shouldn't be trying to think, where is this valley of Jehoshaphat? The emphasis is not on where this is, is going to happen, but what will happen when judgment finally takes place. The terrifying occasion in which all nations, that is all peoples, are brought to final judgment for, for their evil, especially the evil of mistreating God's people. If you look down back in chapter 3, in verse uh, 2, about midway through, then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land, and they have cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. The evil we're talking about here, the evil done against God's people, scattering God's people through persecution, the evil of taking their possessions, the evil of using them as slaves, of casting lots for them, of treating them as property for trade or for, to trade for prostitution or, or drunkenness. These are not idle things. These are happening today amongst God's people all around the world those type of things he's mentioning here in Joel. Jehoshaphat was one of the kings of Judah, and he was mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament, but there's no other mention of this valley of Jehoshaphat. It's just not anywhere else in the scripture. That makes me think that's not what God wants us to zero in on here, is where is this valley? The emphasis is God's glory, not some Middle Eastern geography. The name Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges or Jehovah judges. That's what the name means. So the name was chosen as a play on words concerning what would happen at this time. God says, I will enter into judgment with them there. In this valley of Jehoshaphat, which means God judges, Jehovah judges. I think this is probably a reference to the same thing spoken of in the book of Revelation in chapter 16, which tells of Armageddon. This is a place where the kings of the whole world are gathered together for war of the great day of the Lord, the God, God Almighty. And I can tell you, from every reference in the scripture, that this war doesn't amount to anything. 
because God's almighty and you can't war against almighty. It doesn't matter how much might you have. You don't have any might compared to the almighty. It's not like this is a, this is a, the outcome is uncertain when the kings of the earth gather together against the Lord and his anointed. He scoffs at that. God scoffs at that. Now there is a sense in which God's judgment upon the nations has taken place repeatedly throughout history. Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah and Assyria and Nineveh and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome and even Jerusalem have all been judged because of the rejection of God and his people. But this passage teaches that there will be an ultimate judgment that will fall upon all of humanity for their injustices and rebellion and especially the injustices against the people of God. One last thing I would note concerning this portion of scripture, this valley of Jehoshaphat is the same as the valley of decision. You see that in verse 14, multitudes multitudes in the valley of decision. I think it's that's that's synonymous with this valley of Jehoshaphat. This is often wrongly understood as if people are the ones making the decision. It's like you read it like this, multitudes, multitudes making their decision for or against God. That is not what this is talking about. Uh, it's, I, I know it's even used that way sometimes in evangelistic setting. You know, you need to, there's multitudes here that need to make their decision for Christ. That's not what's going on at this time. That's not what Joel's presenting. What we're talking about here is the final judgment, final consummation of all things. The harvest is ripe. If you read down through here, you see the harvest is ripe. The wine press is full to overflowing with wickedness. The unrepentant sinners have already made their decision. They are fighting against God, resisting him with every ounce of strength that they have. And God says, go ahead and try to do that. That's what he's, if you read down through here, that's what he's saying. Go ahead, try to resist. It's not going to happen in that day. What is being pictured here in Joel is God sitting as judge, making his decision known about them. And the decision is this, guilty as charged. When the multitudes are in this valley, it's too late because this is the final and full day of the Lord. It's what Paul talked about in Second Thessalonians, and there's so many verses we could read on this, but just this one. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from his glory, the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, there they are, there's that day, 
to, and to be marveled at among those who have believed. That's what we're talking about here. This is the final day of the Lord. We see in verses 9 through 11 that it will not matter how strong they think they are in that day. Anybody. How mighty they are on the earth. God's saying in in this section, go ahead, gather your armies and try to come against me in that day. Beat your plowshares, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears in order to stand against me. That's just an Old Testament way of saying, come against me with all you've got. It's like saying, take your metal agricultural instruments and turn them into instruments of war. Come at me with all you've got. It's not going to work. Make yourself as mighty as you can. It will be to no avail. When I swing my sickle, you will be cut down. When I tread my winepress, all wickedness will be smashed. My government will stand. Yours will fall. Those are the same images that are used in the book of Revelation. God swinging his sickle, God uh, treading the wine press. He said that this book is about the government of God, but it is also about the grace of God. God's government is not just sovereign, it is also gracious. We back in chapter two, verse thirteen. For he is a gracious for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger abounding in loving kindness. He will be a refuge for all his people in that great day. When this day takes place, there there will be a refuge if you're in Christ. Verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. And we'll take that up next next time I speak, Lord willing. So I just want to say this in closing. We've been speaking here just briefly about the future. How soon this great day of the Lord will come to pass, we don't know. But this we know. Now is the day and age of the Spirit. The age when God is pouring out His Spirit upon all mankind. That includes everybody in this room can be part of being in this refuge we're talking about. The age in which all who call upon the Lord will be saved. Again, for each one of us here today. All who call upon the Lord can be saved. You can have Christ as your refuge in that great day of God's judgment, that day of decision in the valley of Jehoshaphat, because today is a day of salvation. We're not at this final day yet in terms of the actual judgment day. 
Today is the day of salvation. Another way of saying this is you do not need to be part of that multitude dreading to hear God's verdict against sin. As we're told in the book of Revelation, those who will try to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. You don't need to be part of that multitude. You can right now put your trust in Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You don't, you don't need to fear the wrath of the Lamb if you put your trust in the Lamb of God right now. What do you need to do? You need to do what Joel said. Rend your heart, not your garments. Have something more than external religion. Have the real thing. Rend your heart. He's talking about repentance. Put your trust in Christ. Instead of dreading that day, you can look forward. You can look forward to it. You can be part of a, a different multitude, a great multitude who will be saying, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You can be part of that multitude that will marvel at him in that day, not cringe in terror, but marvel at his mercy and grace. You can... You can dwell with God in Zion, with all the blood-bought saints. You can be part of this Jerusalem that's holy that we'll look at more in the future, but there in verse 17, then you will know that I am the Lord God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and no strangers will pass through it. And strangers will pass through it no more. You can be part of that. You can be part of that Jerusalem. The one that the writer of Hebrews wrote about to the first century Christians. He said, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. So, again... We're in, the, we're in the age of the Spirit. We're in the age of the outpouring of the Spirit. We're, we live in the time of the new covenant. Don't miss it. Well, we'll take up there next time. I thought we could stand and sing this song with harps and with vials. There stand a great throng. <clears throat>